And that question is, is who do you think you are? You know, it's a question we like to ask other people, and I, if you're like me, you oftentimes will probably ask that question when you're annoyed or frustrated with somebody or a group of people, and you say something like, who in the world does he think he is? Who does she think she is? For me, I do that when I'm annoyed or I'm frustrated. I'm driving down the road and I'm in the left lane and somebody's not going as fast as I need them to go so that I can get on with the important things that I have ahead for my day. And so I'm like, who does he think he is to drive this slow in the fast lane? It's the fast lane. Maybe you're standing in line at the grocery store, the 15 items or less line, and she's got 25 items in your basket, and you know that because you counted. And you're like, man, who does she think she is? Maybe for you, it's when you're at home and, uh, you know, your kids are acting insane or doing something crazy and they run up to you and start doing something like lick your face over and over and over like my son did a few years ago. I'm like, Cam, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? And he's like, I'm a, I'm a puppy dog, Dad. I'm like, no, you're not. You're a little boy. Stop licking my face. It's weird. Get away, you know? It's, it's what's going on. Maybe you walked in this morning and you asked that question of somebody, not face to face, but you looked at them because they were sitting in your seat. And that's your seat. Nobody sits in your seat. And you said, who in the world did they think they are that they would sit in our seats? But I think it's an important question. And it's a critical question as we kick off this new teaching series that Mark and I and Marco have been working really um, hard on to, to spend some time identifying the answer to that question for all of us is who do we think we are? When we fill in the blank that I am, how do we fill in the blank? I am rich, I am poor, I am young, I am old, I am loved, I am not loved, I am smart, I'm not so smart, I'm athletic, I'm not athletic. How do we finish that phrase. You know, our culture um, believes that it's an important question to answer as well. This isn't just a church thing. This isn't just a thing that as a follower of Jesus I think is important. Our culture believes that it's an important question that we would answer because the reality is, is that who we identify as will ultimately determine what we do. Our identity dictates our activity. And if you've been around very long, which all of us have been enough of, we know that there can be some great rewards with what we do, but there can also be some devastating circumstances. And so it's important for us to understand where does our identity lie? You know, I don't think there's anything more important as a church, as a group of people who have gathered together to just simply remember our identity, our identity in Jesus. And that is something that shapes us. It shapes the relationships we're in. It shapes the culture that we're in. I don't think there is anything more important that we should be a part of and we should engage in than the church. I believe the church of Jesus, that Jesus himself is the hope of the world. It's not politics. It's not a political system. And listen, I'm super grateful to live in a country where my vote and my voice counts for something. But let's be real. At the end of the day, donkeys, elephants, poop comes out of both. And so we've got to be careful with our expectations of what it is that's ultimately going to change the world. Because I believe as a political system, we can manage some things well, we can create some things well, we can help our society, but nothing brings about the change and the life change that is in Jesus. And as we dive into the series, I want us to focus on what it means to be in Jesus, what it means to be in Christ. And in order to do that, in order to answer that question well, we're going to look at the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians was written thousands of years ago by a guy named Paul, and Paul writes it to a city 
to a group of believers living in a city known Ephesus. Now, Ephesus and Houston have a lot of things in common. Both were major port cities. A lot of trade and, 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 and commerce happened in this port city of Ephesus, much like in Houston. It was a place that was multicultural. There were several different ethnicities that were present in the city of Ephesus. It was a place that was spiritual. People believed in the spiritual presence. Now, it wasn't always of God himself. Um, there was actually a lot of people focused on the worship of the goddess Diana. And one of the ways to worship the goddess Diana was through sexual immorality. And so sexual immorality actually became a legitimate industry in the city of Ephesus. I think, I think we can see the common trend there in our city. I mean, just recently we're having the debate, should robotic brothels be allowed in our city? Sexual immorality has become a legitimate industry, a billion dollar industry. And Paul hears about the faith of a small group of believers he writes them, he encourages them. He's never met them face to face. Scholars believe there were maybe only 12 that he began to write this letter to to help them understand who they are, whose they are, and what it is they're supposed to live their life for. So I want to pick that up in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from our God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's writing to followers of Jesus in Ephesus. Now it's important for us to understand, he says in Jesus Christ. What does that mean to be in Christ? Well, I think we can simply reflect on the most common, most popular um, verse in the Bible. If you've never been in church before and you somehow found yourself here this morning, welcome. I'm glad you decided to hang out with us, but you probably are even familiar with this verse. It's the verse John 3:16. You see it on signs at football games, athletes wear it on the eye black on their face, but it says this, for God so loved, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life, shall not perish. And so there's, there's a promise in that, and it's, we ultimately realize that because of God's love, we have an opportunity to put our faith, place our faith in Jesus. That's what it means to be in Christ. And Paul is writing to some who have already made that decision. They said, I recognize who Jesus is and I wanna live my life for him. And so they are all in, they are in Christ. That's who Paul is writing for. And then he goes on this barrage of information and it's like one exhaustive paragraph of run-on sentences. The next phrase in the English, we've tidied it up a little bit, but in the original Greek, if you were to read this, you would be overwhelmed and if you're an English teacher, you'd be incredibly frustrated. I imagine my middle school English teacher having a panic attack as she reads this and begins to realize there's no punctuation here and there should be punctuation here. There needs to be something here to connect these sentences and it's not, but that's how he's, he's, he just starts to, to, to express the gratitude and the goodness and the love and the grace and the mercy that is in Christ for those who trust Christ. And it's meant to hit us like we're standing in front of a fire hydrant, overwhelmed with what Paul is about to say to us. And so he begins on, he starts to say in verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is praise be to God who has blessed us in, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose him in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love. Now that's kind of interesting because it's almost like he starts on this, this rant about God's goodness and then he places the motivation right there in the middle. In love. 
If the only thing you remember as you leave this morning is that I am loved, in Christ I am loved, then you have set yourself up to begin to understand the identity you have in Christ. In Christ I am loved. It's the motivation for what Paul is saying. He continues on in verse five and he's like, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now I'm just gonna pause right there and there's a lot more that we're gonna read and we're gonna unpack this morning but it's already starting to overwhelm us and if you're like me, you have to read something several times before it starts to make sense and maybe I'm just a little bit slower than you but I want us to slow down a little bit this morning. And I want us to look at these verses and begin to understand God's love for us. Because what Paul is saying, he's saying, hey listen, when you understand what it means to be in Christ, you begin to understand God's love for you, your life becomes a natural, authentic, genuine celebration of his goodness. You celebrate that. You know, I get pictures often um, from students, from students that have gone on and graduated and are now in college. Some of them even married now and have their own kids. But they'll send me pictures of a piece of cake from Chewy's restaurant called Tres Leches. And if you've ever experienced Tres Leches, you know the goodness that is Tres Leches. But students send me pictures of it because they've heard me talk about it in messages like this, but I'll talk about how amazing this is. I had a friend that introduced me to the cake several years ago. I had eaten at Chewy's for years, but I had never experienced Tres Leches. I mean, who knew that soggy cake could be from heaven? I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's incredible. I mean, I had been to Chewy's many times, but I had never fully experienced Chewy's. And listen, if you've been to Chewy's and you've not had Tres Leches, you're doing it wrong. You have not experienced the goodness that is Tres Leches. But you know what happens when I experience something that's good and I've tasted it, I've seen it, then I celebrate that. I express the goodness of that. My life becomes an expression of my gratitude to Jesus as I understand what it means to be in Christ. And I know some of you this morning, you're like, Wes, that's awesome, that's, that's great. I'm glad you're excited about it. Great are you, great is the Lord but you don't get super amped up about it. There's not a lot of passion. There's not a lot of excitement. And some of you might push back and say, well, Wes, that's just not me. That's just not my personality. You know, I come to church and I hang out and the music gets loud, the fog machine comes on, the lights are bright. This is a cool experience. God is love, I'm I'm excited about that. And you're like, that's just who I am. But I've seen some of you. I've seen you at football games and I've seen passion. And I've seen excitement for some 18 to 20 year old who's running down the sideline with a dead animal in his hands with really tight pants that doesn't even know your name and you are losing your mind in excitement because you're experiencing something that is good because your team is succeeding. And you lose your mind, you're high-fiving people you've never met, you're giving people hugs that you've never talked to because you are overwhelmed with the goodness of that moment. Now listen, I'm not saying you need to do that in this place this morning because everybody does that differently. But my question is, is I want us to reflect and begin to think, have I ever been really overwhelmed by the goodness and the love that is in Jesus? Because if you haven't, then I think you might be missing it. You may not clearly understand what it means to be in Christ. And I want us to leave here this morning with confidence that I am loved. And I think what Paul is telling us is he's giving us some proof So how do we know that I am loved by God? How do you know that you are loved by God? Paul tells us, he starts off by saying, he chose me. Look what it says in verse four. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. You know, we all desire to be chosen. 
Because be, to be chosen or to be selected means that our life has value, that our life carries some weight, that there's some significance about me that makes me chosen. And for some of us, when you think about being chosen or selected or picked, you immediately go back to the playground in elementary school where everybody lines up and it's like, okay guys, pick teams. Who's team captains? All right, cool. You guys start picking. And you're like, oh, I know this, this is going. It's just gonna be me and the stray dog at the end, just kind of kicking the rocks. Well, here we are, last picked again. Or maybe you think about your Instagram feed and you're just looking through Instagram, scrolling through it, and you see what everybody else is doing this weekend, where everybody else is hanging out together, but you didn't get the invite. And you begin to think, man, I didn't get invited. And so what we do is we spend our life trying to raise ourselves up to make ourselves feel significant so that someone will choose us, so someone will accept us, so someone will select me and understand that my life does carry weight, my life does have value. And we look to all sorts of different things to try to accomplish this. Some of us look to appearance. I don't understand this, and ladies, you do for the most part, but it's one thing to look pretty, but it's something else to feel pretty. I mean, I can have conversations with my wife and be like, Babe, you look amazing today. No, like really, you, you look really good today. And she'll say something like this. Well, I'm glad you think so, but I just don't feel pretty today. Now guys, we don't understand that. I've never walked up to a dude and had a conversation. I'm like, dude, what is, what is wrong with you today? I just don't feel handsome today, man. <laughs> just not feeling it. It's just that kind of day. <laughs> but it's real. And the reason it's real is because we've surrounded ourselves, not on purpose, but we just live in a culture where we look at TV or we look at a Facebook ad and it's like saying, hey, you need this product to make you look prettier so that you feel more valued, more accepted, so that someone will choose you. So use this product and you'll, you'll be better off. You'll be prettier, you'll look better. Or we're standing in line in the express line, frustrated because she has 25 items in her basket and so you've got a little more time than you expected and you see the magazine and you see her on the cover of the magazine, you're just like, Ugh, I hate her. She's not real. She's got a team of people that made her look like that and an airbrush. I mean, don't, don't compare yourself with that. But we do, and it's dangerous, and it's discouraging. We begin to think to ourselves, man, I don't know that anybody wants me. Maybe it's not relationships. Maybe it is social media. I mean, maybe it was MySpace back in the day. Maybe it's Facebook, maybe it's Instagram, maybe it's something else in the social media world, but you get on there and it's innocent. Listen, I love social media. I love getting information from social media, but we have to be careful because if we're not careful, we'll start looking at social media and we'll be looking at all the pictures and all the stories and all the information that's on there. We'll see everybody else's life, which they controlled, by the way, so that you could see their best version of themselves, but you see the best and so you start to compare and you think, man, their life is their life is so great. Their life is so good. My life can't even come close to matching that. And we become discouraged because there's something in us that makes us want to feel valued, want to feel like our life matters. And sometimes we can get on social media and it screams at us that we're not good enough. Maybe you look to your schoolwork or your, your work, your job for this significance and that's great, and ambition is good, but we have to be careful to not let what we do become who we are. Because there's always gonna be somebody smarter, 
There's always gonna be somebody that works harder. There's always gonna be somebody a little bit higher than us. And so we have to be careful because what happens is when we place our identity in what we do, then when we find and experience some sort of failure, big or small, it can devastate us because it rocks us at the core of who we are because we've placed our identity in what we do. And we have to be careful of that. Maybe for some it's relationships. I mean, some of you are sitting here today and you're like, man, I've caught the disease. I'm single. And I don't think it's curable. I think I'm going to be this way forever. I'm never going to find somebody. And then you get frustrated because you go to Thanksgiving, you go to Christmas, the holidays are coming and you're already dreading it. Because mom and dad are going to be like, you know, you're, you're starting to get a little older. I think it may be time to settle down and find somebody. And you're like, mom, I know, I know. You think I don't know? You think I don't look in the mirror every day? I know. But we get frustrated. And maybe for some of us, it comes from some deep wounds from relationships in the past where you were in a relationship and that person, that guy or that girl made you believe that aside from them and apart from them, then you really weren't significant. And you're carrying that with you because you've placed your identity in that, you've placed your worth in that, you've placed your significance in some sort of relationship. What Paul is trying to get us to understand is that the creator of the world, God himself, before the creation of the world, he chose you. And he chose you for something. He chose you to be holy and blameless. What does that mean? It means that he chose you to be set apart, to be holy, to be distinguished to himself. It's like me choosing my wife. I chose her because I thought she was the best and I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. When God chose you, he chose you as the best. Not because anything you did or you haven't done yet, he chose you because you are you. But he chose you to be blameless. And sometimes we get really stuck in our past. And we think, man, some of the things I've done, there is absolutely no way that God is going to mess this, no, no way that God is, could choose me for what I've done. My past experience. I mean, that's what we do. That's what we make resumes based on. We make resumes to look at our past experience. And then we try to help people see the potential we have. For some of us, when we look at our past experience and we think about our potential, we begin to think there is absolutely no way that God would choose me. But Paul is saying, hey, God is worth celebrating this morning. He is worth worshiping. He is worth praising because he chose you, not because of you. But yet he chose you because of you. It's almost scandalous. Are you feeling overlooked this morning? Are you feeling insignificant? God is choosing. God is reaching out. He is selecting you this morning. God is on the move. Paul continues on in verse five, he says, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So what did he choose us for? What did God choose us for? He chose us to be adopted as sons and daughters to himself. He changes our destiny. That word predestined means that he had a destiny in mind for those he chooses, for those that he, he recognizes. He chooses a new destiny for you, a new family for you. When I was 13 years old, my parents said, hey Wes, we're gonna have a family night tonight. And I said, oh good, because when you're 13, you just don't really get amped about family nights, especially on a Friday night. I was gonna hang out with my friends, and my mom and dad said, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna hang out tonight. I was like, okay, cool. Gets to Friday night, and I realized neither one of my brothers are there. And I'm like, well, this is kinda weird. I thought this was family night, but my little brothers aren't here, so what's going on? This is already getting kinda awkward. And they began, long story short, to explain to me um, some things that had happened before I was born. My mom um, found out that she was pregnant and um, she had been in a long-term relationship with a guy and the guy decided that um, when she was pregnant that he didn't want to pursue the relationship with her any longer. He didn't want to pursue a relationship with me. 
And so he left, he walked away, he abandoned her and me and said, you know, have a nice life. And so kind of a devastating situation, but just uh, several weeks later, she met who I call my dad, Bruce, and they began to kind of get to know each other, they began to go out on some dates and um, quickly fell in love and got, got married just a few weeks before I was born. And just a few days before I was born, my dad, Bruce, had to make a decision. What was he gonna do about me? Was I part of the deal? Was it like a package deal? Hey, buy one, get one free? What, like, what was he gonna do? And my dad made a decision. He said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna adopt the kid. And so when I was 13, my parents told me this. They explained it to me. They said, hey, listen, who you think is your dad is not your biological dad, but he obviously has raised you, and, and so this is, this is where we are, and we just think it's important that you know. Because, you know, when you get to that age, you start asking questions. You're like, you know, I don't look like him. <laughs> what's, I have blonde hair, he has dark hair, I don't understand what's going on, this is kind of fishy. And so I remember the next day, we, um, th- that night was just kind of overwhelming, I was kind of confused, and, and just my mind was all over the place. The next day, just me and my dad, and not my brothers, we go out to the ranch together to spend the day working, and I just remember as we worked and as we went through the day, there wasn't a lot of conversation because I was just processing it all, and I was just kind of overwhelmed and thinking through it all, and I remember just kind of like looking at him at times and just be like, just, just not really sure what to think. And then as years went on, I continued to just consider all the things that had happened in my life as a result of some of the circumstances. And when I became a father myself, I, I began to reflect and just began to think. And sometimes vain imaginations would come up. And I remember asking my dad specifically on the phone one day. I was sitting out in the parking lot of the church that I worked at at the time. And I just asked him a question because I was overwhelmed with gratitude in that moment. And I just said, Dad, why? Why did you choose that? Why did you do that? Why did you, why did you marry mom and why did you adopt me? And he said, I just felt like it was the right thing to do. And I loved your mom and I quickly loved you. And the reason I tell you that is because here's what happened. That day that my dad signed the documentation, did what was necessary to adopt me, he wasn't just signing a document. He was saying, I am choosing this boy to be my son. I am choosing to love him. I'm going to pursue a relationship with him. He changed my story. I went from being fatherless to being claimed as his son. My identity was changed that day, forever. His name became my name. His house became my house. His food became my food. I will carry his identity on forever. And I think what Paul is trying to help us see this morning is that that's what God does for us. We celebrate him because he adopted us, not just so that we could be part of some organization or hang out at some church down the road, but so that we could be sons and daughters of the creator of the world. And when we see that, something happens in us. We begin to celebrate because we are overwhelmed with gratitude for who he is and what he's done for us. It was his desire. It wasn't his obligation. It was his desire because he loves us. Paul continues on in verse seven. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. In him we have redemption. He has redeemed us. Well, what, is that, what does that mean? Because that's kind of a churchy word, um, unless we're thinking about gift cards we get for Christmas and we redeem the gift cards, but that really kind of doesn't capture all that Paul is trying to say. He's saying that God has redeemed us. What he has done is we were trapped. We were imprisoned in an incredibly difficult situation and he jumped in and pulled us out. 
You know, we do a lot of work across the world as community of faith. You do a lot of work across the world as community of faith. And one of the organizations that we partner with in India is called Changing the, the Changing Destiny Project. And Mark Taylor and his team do some incredible work. And in this picture, you'll see, you'll see a woman who is sitting in a brothel waiting to be purchased for that day. And what Mark Taylor and his team do is they, they connect with women like this and their kids and they say, hey, listen, the life you're living currently is not your best life. It's not what God created and designed you for. This is not the end. And what they do is they jump into a difficult, messy, complicated, hopeless situation and they rescue women. Rescue women from themselves, rescue women from the abuse that they may face from other people. They rescue their kids and they begin to help them find greater nutrition, education. They begin to teach them how to have a, a different sort of a job so that they can live a better life. They've built a school that's uh, currently educating over 80 children, and not all those children were children from these women. Some of them were children that Mark Taylor and his team have gone in in covert operations and rescued children so that they can begin to educate them and give them a better life because they were in a hopeless situation, not able to help themselves, and the team from Changing Destiny Project have jumped in to rescue them. And you, Community of Faith, helped build a school. Yeah, we can clap for that because that's worth celebrating. In 2016, we helped build a school for the 80 children, and currently, as you see on the screen, there's a school being built for 400 children that are going to be rescued out of a hopeless situation and showed a new life. And the reason I love this is not just because of the work and the life change that's happening physically for these kids, but it's a declaration of what God did for us. He redeemed us. He pulled us out of a hopeless situation that we were incapable of pulling ourselves out of. He rescued us from that, and he forgave us. For some of us, we really need to focus on that forgiveness element because, you know, for some, we find ourselves in a circumstance or situation that maybe we don't feel responsible for, but it's even more tragic when we realize that we're in a situation because of some of the poor choices that we've made, and we struggle with that because we think, man, I've, I've messed this up too much. There's no way God could love me. There's no way God could forgive me, but this verse is saying he does. He chooses you as a son or daughter to redeem you and to forgive you. I mean, think about some of the Bible characters in the Bible. Maybe this gives us hope. Noah, we think about Noah and the ark. Did you know that Noah got incredibly drunk and was running around naked? I mean, that's, that's a good story. I mean, if that happens today, you're gonna be all over Snapchat. You're gonna get kicked off the team. You're probably gonna lose your job. What did Noah get? Noah got a Bible story. <laughs> Why? Because God is full of, of forgiveness and he redeemed Noah and he changed his story and he used him for his work. Sarah laughed at God's promises. Jacob was a compulsive liar. Rahab was a prostitute. John was self-righteous. Peter cussed out a little girl and turned his back on Jesus, his closest friend. Thomas doubted. Paul murdered Christians. Paul, the author of the text we're reading today, once a murderer. You think he doesn't understand forgiveness as he writes it in this passage. Mark quit, yet all were used by God not because they were perfect, but in spite of their imperfections. Why? Because God pours out his forgiveness for us. And so if this morning you're feeling a little bit messed up, that you've maybe messed up too much, God's forgiveness is rich for you. You are loved by God. He shows that through his forgiveness. The next thing he shows us is his plans. 
Verse eight, it says, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What he's saying, he's saying, hey, once you understand what it means to be in Christ, you realize that before the creation of the world, God chose you, he adopted you, and then in the history of the world, he set up a plan to redeem and forgive, that when our eyes are open to that, then our eyes are also open to the plans and the purposes he has for us. We begin to see clearly what we were designed for, what we were created for. Number one, to be in a relationship with God and to worship him and to celebrate him in everything in our life. And two, to see that happen through our lives. And so as you begin to see this, as you begin to understand this, your eyes are open to the opportunities you have to participate in the work that he's doing through you. It shows up in your schoolwork, students, in the way that you work hard, in the way that you respect those around you, the way that you honor those in authority over you, your coaches, your teachers, your principals. It shows up in our workplaces, in the way that we work with each other with integrity. It shows up in our marriages, in the way that we love one another selflessly. It shows up in the way that we lead our kids, and we see God's purposes at work, and we see when our, his purpose is at work, he does miracles through us. It's an incredible thing that he opens our eyes to. And I was thinking about it this week and really over the last several weeks as we were getting ready for this series, I believe that we are in a critical time as a church. And I believe that God wants to continue to build his church. And the thing that we don't realize is he's actually building his church in exponential ways all across the world. And for some reason in the United States, churches are closing their doors. The truth is God is gonna continue to expand his kingdom, his church. We have to decide are we gonna let our eyes be open to that and step in with it? And so I just started to crunch numbers because I'm a numbers guy. I'm not an English guy, which is funny because I end up writing basically a paper every week to communicate to people, um, but I'm definitely a numbers guy. I like numbers. And so I was just looking at some maps the last couple of weeks and looking at populations. And in this area, the four immediate zip codes around community of faith, there's just over 200,000 people. Now that may have grown some since this particular census was done about a year and a half ago, but 200,000 people. You know, I think as we begin to understand who God is for us and what he wants to do through us, we begin to see his vision. And we see a world that's devastated by addiction, by hurt, by chaos. And I just began to think, man, what would it look like to begin to reach those 200,000? I mean, what if God put it on us as his church, not focused on what our preferences are, on what we want, but focused on the needs of those around us? Their greatest need, they're not in Christ. And so what if we reach just 10%, 20,000 people over the next few years? That blows my mind and that overwhelms me. But I think God's plans are supposed to overwhelm us. But we don't get overwhelmed when we realize who we are in Christ because it took a miracle so that I could even be in Christ. And so there's nothing that is impossible with him. He begins to show us these plans. We begin to celebrate in advance for what he is going to do. The next thing he does in verse 11, it says, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Do you see that phrase continue to come up? The praise of his glory. What is this all about? The celebration of Jesus I mean, all of this is about the worship and the declaration of how great Jesus is. But this particular passage talks about an inheritance. And in English, it can be confusing, but if you go back and you look at the original text, the original Greek, it's not talking about an inheritance that we receive. It talks about that in just a minute. 
but it's actually talking about a heritage that is God's. In other words, it's saying that you and I in Jesus, we are God's inheritance. I mean, let your mind just kind of explode on that thought for a second. What he's saying, he's saying you are God's greatest possession. You are his greatest reward. You are his trophy. And so as I was thinking about this and just trying to recognize the the gravity and the weight of this, I started thinking back to 2017 because I know some of us are still a little salty about 2018 because the Astros got beat in the American League Championship Series. So I had to go back to 2017 and find a picture of the World Series trophy. And in this picture, you see George Springer holding the World Series trophy. Now, for me, if I was holding the World Series trophy, it would be kind of cool and it'd be like, hey, take a picture of me, take a selfie so I can put it on Instagram and everything. everybody can think I'm cool. But for George Springer, it means something entirely different. Because for George Springer, he's invested time, energy, emotion, resources. He has sacrificed other things in his life in order to accomplish what he accomplished last November. He won the World Series. And so when he holds that trophy, it's a declaration of all his hard work, all of his accomplishment, all of George Springer's glory and his accomplishment. He says, look what I did. I think what Paul wants us to see in this passage is he wants us to celebrate God because he wants us to recognize that we are God's trophy and that when people see us in Christ, they see the greatest work that God did. He brought us from death to life and we celebrate that. What did he give up in order for that to happen? The life of his son. I think that's significant. And I think when our eyes are opened to this, it changes the way we see ourselves because the, the, the The tragedy is this morning is oftentimes when we don't see the value that our life carries, we allow ourselves to hurt ourselves and we allow other people to hurt us. We become the abuser and the abused. But when we realize that we are God's greatest trophy, it's not so that you and I can stand on a platform and say, man, look how great I am. It's I stand on a platform and say, look how awesome my God is because I was broken, I was messed up, I was dysfunctional, my life was full of chaos and he rescued me. And when I do that, I'm no longer consumed by what everybody else wants me to be or what I think everybody else expects of me. I am consumed with who I am in Christ. He lifts us up. And then the last thing is this. Look what it says in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed. That word sealed could also be interpreted as marked. There was a mark on your life with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance, there's our inheritance, this is when it's talking about us, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There's that phrase again, to the praise of his glory. What is he saying? He's saying, I know that I'm loved by God because he gives me confidence. Why do I have confidence? Because he has marked me. I mean, think about this for a second. Who has the right to mark or label something? I mean, who has the the right to label Nike products? Nike, Apple products, Apple, Amazon products, Amazon. Why, because they're the maker of those things. The other person that gets to label or mark something is the buyer. When you purchase something at a store, you have every right to do whatever you want to with that product. I like to um, give my dad a difficult time, and he's probably watching this morning, he's probably like, man, why is my son putting me on blast in front of all these people? 
But my dad is, if, if, if you spend any time with him, you realize that he labels everything. He marks everything. He puts his name on everything. I don't know if it's because he's just skeptic of everybody else. He's like, nobody's taking my stuff. I'm putting my name on it. And so growing up, we put our names on everything. I mean, I had my name on my jacket, on my lunchbox, on my backpack, on my little brother. I mean, it was on everything. <laughs> but why did my dad and why do I have the right to do that? Because I purchased it. If you go to Academy today, and you say, you know what, I wanna see what it's like to be Barry Bonds or Sammy Sosa back in the day. And they got to autograph all those baseball um, gloves. I wanna go to an academy today. I'm just gonna take a Sharpie. I'm gonna start writing my name, Wes Jackson, Wes Jackson, Wes Jackson. If you choose to do that, please YouTube it because I wanna watch it. But you're not gonna get away with it because you've not purchased it. It's not yours. You don't have the right to mark it. What Paul is saying, he's saying God has marked you. And he has marked you so that you would have confidence. He has claimed you as his. In Christ, he purchased you. It's the guarantee. It's what we need to have confidence. But he didn't mark us with like a tattoo. He didn't get a Sharpie out and mark us like I may have marked my little brother. He didn't do that. What did he mark us with? It says with the promised Holy Spirit. Why is that important? I'm glad you asked. You know, if you go all the way back to the very beginning, it says that we were created from dust. And when God created us from the dust, he breathed life into us. And the interesting thing is the word spirit and the word breath and the word wind are all the same word in the Old Testament. So all the way back in the beginning, God made us and formed us and created us from dust and he breathed life into us. And everything was good, but humanity chose to walk away from God. And when we walked away from the authority of God, we lost the presence, we lost the breath, we lost the spirit, the intimate, personal presence of God left. And God said that in the very beginning. He said, from dust you came, and to dust you will depart. The presence of God was gone from humanity. And then as you continue on in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets begin to prophesy and say, there's a day when the, the wind is gonna come back, the breath of God is going to return. And in one particular passage, God gives a prophet a vision of a valley of dry bones. And he says, hey, do you think that this, these bones can come alive? Now, if you're standing in a valley and God begins to tell you, hey, do you think that this skeleton is gonna get up and start walking? I mean, you're talking to God, and so you're like, I don't know, God, I mean, I, I, you know. You, I mean, you're God, you can, you, can, you can do this. And that's how the prophet responded. So the, God looks at the prophet and he says, prophesy to the wind, to breathe in to the bones. And as he does that, the bones begin to take on flesh and they begin to come alive. And God says to the prophet, now prophesy, there's going to be a day where my breath, where my spirit is going to return and it's gonna make dead things come alive. It's gonna make broken things be made new. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, I am the spirit of God. It was in his first sermon. They're like, who are you? And he says, I'm the breath, I'm the wind, I'm the spirit of God, he is with me. And he goes to the cross and he gives his life and he comes back to life on the third day and then he goes and he meets up with his disciples. And his disciples are saddened, they're overwhelmed in the, the, the difficulty of the death of Jesus and then they see Jesus and they're like, Jesus, you're alive. And it says that they, they have this encounter and in that moment, they're like, Jesus, what? Jesus, you're, you're here. And Jesus breathes on them. I don't, I don't know about you, but if you're hanging out and I show up at your party unexpectedly and you're like, hey, what's up, Wes? I'm glad you're here. And I go, <laughs> you're gonna punch me in the throat. 
But I think the disciples understood exactly what was happening in that moment. As Jesus breathed on them, he said, receive my Holy Spirit. Receive the breath of God. I did what you were not capable of doing on your own. You now have access to the intimate, personal breath of God himself. And he says, as you continue to live, just know that I am with you. I am walking with you. I have sealed you. I have marked you. Let that be your confidence because what is mine is yours and I will never let go of what I've taken hold of. So my question to you this morning is who are you? Who am I? I know who I am in Christ. In Christ, I am loved. And his love is displayed in the fact that he chose me, he chose you. He adopted you to be sons and daughters of himself, the creator of the world. And when he did that, it redeemed you, it pulled you out of a hopeless life. He forgives you for your deepest, darkest, most discouraging decisions. Everything that you're gonna do in the future, everything you've done in the past, everything you're engaged in currently, he has forgiven you for that. He has opened your eyes to the plans and the purposes that he has for you. He's lifting you up so that he would be on display, so that the work that he does through you becomes the work that he's doing in those around you through your life. And where does our confidence come from? He's with me, and he's never gonna leave me. And so I can walk every single day with confidence and believe that what's happening even in this room today doesn't have to stay in this room. It goes out and it makes an impact in the world around us. And we see a Jesus movement like we've never seen before. Will you close your eyes for just a moment? I just want you to consider where this lands for you. You know, I think there's probably two groups, maybe more, but two specific groups I want to just consider something for a moment. And I know that this is the end of the service and I say this every time I teach, but I would just ask that you stay in your seats and let this moment be what it needs to be for so many in the room. But for some, you've never been overwhelmed by Jesus. You've never known what it looks like to be in Christ. Your eyes have never been open to that. And maybe you're hung up on the part of the passage we read this morning where it talks about being the chosen, being the predestined. Who are those? I mean, who are the chosen? I believe the chosen are those who hear this message this morning. They hear the hope and the love that is found in Jesus and they respond. They believe. You are the chosen. But you have to respond. How do I respond? I say, Jesus, here's my life. I realize the mess that I can make on my own. I realize the success I can have on my own. But regardless of all of that, I place my life in your hands. Show me how to live. I trust you. Maybe right now in this moment, you just need to have that conversation with Jesus. And then for others, there's some here that you've, you've made that decision and you've walked with Jesus maybe for years, but you've been distracted lately more on what you do rather than who you are. And it's wrecking you. And you just need to simply remember this morning, Jesus. And allow Jesus to remind you of everything that he is for you personally. Let the breath of God, the spirit of God, the intimate personal presence of God just overwhelm you in this moment. And to do this, we've been intentional with moving communion to the end of our service today. And so we want you to take the opportunity to take communion this morning and be very intentional not to do something out of routine, but to do something out of remembrance. Remembrance for a God who loves you and who chose you, who gave his life for you. And so as we take the bread and we take the cup, 
we do so to remember that so that it would overwhelm us this morning and it would stir a passion in us that maybe we've never experienced before. And so you'll notice in just a moment after I pray, there's tables all around the room with, ca- table, with candles lit. You can find the bread and the cup there. If you're in the risers, we ask that you stay in your seats. Our volunteers will bring communion to you. But I think the two most important things we can do this morning is simply remember Jesus. And maybe for some, it's not even remembering, it's just recognizing because it's for the very first time. And so as you take communion this morning, you're saying, Jesus, here's my life. I give it to you. Do with it what you want to. And then after we remember, we're gonna sing and we're gonna celebrate. And maybe that involves dancing. Maybe that involves clapping. Maybe that means falling to your knees and just an overwhelming sense of gratitude to who Jesus is and what he means to you.